0: Let's all go to the lobby, let's all
1: go to the lobby, let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.
2: Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rivka Rivera.
0: And I'm Frank Capello. So a little bit of uh, context for our listeners right off the bat, Rivka just got done uh, with a night shoot, Um, and that is not... That doesn't mean anyone was, was trying to shoot her at night. That means that she was working on a film production all night long. So how are you feeling uh, today?
2: I feel loopy. I did not <laughs> sleep. i That's not true. I took like hours, hour segmented naps. And then I had to, but I had to come. So we went till 6.30 a.m. And this was a, before anyone's like, scab. <laughs> this was a... um. <laughs> a really dear, a really talented friend of mine who's a filmmaker, their short film. And so when you do a short film like this, it's SAG, ultra low budget. I mean, we're getting paid, you know, very like $125. No one's making a profit. No one's streaming. There's, this isn't even like a waiver situation.
0: Yeah, SAG has different tiers for what types of productions and how they're classified based on what their budgets are. So like everything that's happening in the strike right now has no, pretty much nothing to do with how ultra low budget productions are uh, classified and how they're contracted.
2: Yeah. I mean, we're fundraising. It's there's it's professional, but it's a lot of, it's also like passion, passion work. So Mm -hmm. passion work. Um, That's not the right word for it, but again, (laughs) loopy. Um, But yeah, it was a lot of fun. The, the people worked on it were super talented. So it was a great time, but I am. Yeah. Exactly. Exhausted. And actually, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today um, was reality television, which uh, talk about being exhausted. We'll get into some of these exploitative practices, but one of them on a lot of shows, particularly shows like Love is Blind, which I have... um, watched my fair share of A.K. every episode possible
0: i think it's okay to say that you're a fan you were a fan before we found (laughs) out how how abusive they were to these uh people on set so i think you're, you're covered
2: sure and it's like no secret that the bachelor does the same thing it's like but i'm really feeling how like and i just like under lack of sleep and then if someone was to give me alcohol right now i don't know what i'd say I don't know what I do (laughs) like it's really it's almost like
0: that's what reality TV show producers are counting on
2: you know it almost is but what's important is that so there's some really big news as of yesterday actually in terms of um, reality television and uh, union so reality TV workers are not unionized hosts are but their reality TV workers as of now are not covered in the union
0: the performers yes because i imagine i imagine a lot of reality production crews are unionized through iotsi and other other production unions
2: yes that's correct and actually um so we mentioned love is blind but there are two cast members from season two nick thompson and jeremy hartwell who've been doing a lot um to speak out on the issue since their season since actually the summer of 2022 and so they They have created this foundation called the You Can Foundation Unscripted Cast Advocacy Network to support unscripted cast members by giving them mental health and legal services. And um, Jeremy also filed a lawsuit against Netflix and Kinetic on behalf of Love is Blind and Ultimatum cast members in the summer of 2022, alleging that they broke California labor law. But they've come out and we really recommend checking out this More Perfect Union video, which maybe we can link In our show notes, but they talk about this kind of um, exploitation, which includes, as we mentioned, and I'm not suggesting I I'm joking, I by no means was like exploited on my film shoot last night. But there is this psychological moment, they take your phones, your wallets, your passports, and they're filming eighteen to twenty hour days. And so like all day. So like, yeah, so all day, all day and and being paid like seven dollars and 14 cents on the hour, essentially.
0: Yeah, that was the shocking thing when they did their their breakdown of how much they were actually paid per hour. It was less than federal minimum wage. Yes. They're also being sequestered from anyone and everyone. Like you said, they've had their phones removed. They have no contact with the outside world. So all they are doing is being sleep deprived, being filmed all day, and then getting pumped with alcohol. That was the other shocking thing is that they didn't really provide food for them?
2: Yes. Oh, yeah. Nick says he lost 15 pounds in three weeks being on this show because their food is being messed with, their sleep is being messed with. Now, I'm not saying, I am not saying, I don't think some of these people maybe found some love. But I'm telling you, I could fall in love with, like, a lot of things right now. Like I am loopy. <laughs> I am looking for comfort when I don't get my sleep. So, um yeah, I mean, it, again, and and what I love is that Nick really calls it out. So does Jeremy as this is unregulated capitalism. This is pure Exploitation, And what's interesting about this intersection, right, is like, as we've discussed before, reality TV really took a boom at the last writer's strike. So there's this weird relationship mm-hmm. between and sort of a little unspoken antagonism of like, for scripted media actors and what we do that like, when we can't do what we do, that's when reality TV comes in and like, takes our work, but they're being exploited just the same.
0: For also anyone that doesn't know a lot about TV production, it is massively cheaper to produce reality TV than it is to produce scripted television, because, you know, paying actors, paying, you know, grips to light the sets correctly, paying writers, paying directors, all you got to do is get some real people, ply them with alcohol and start rolling. So it's it's much cheaper uh, for companies to do reality than scripted.
2: Exactly. And so... Nick and Jeremy and like a lot of people have been speaking out about this since 2022 and I'm sure maybe before that but they've been laying the ground and then in comes Bethany Frankel who you may know as the CEO of Skinny Girl which started as pre-packaged low-carb margaritas and she's now a millionaire but she did get her start on Real Housewives so she kind of her claim to fame I guess is reality television and um she came out with this TikTok, which kind of blew up because it's um, being credited for for something that SAG has said. But we'll play the TikTok first. But what I do want to say before we play the TikTok, and I'll say it probably again after, is that, like, listen, Bethany Frankel is extremely problematic. She's made extremely racist comments. She is, like, has built a oh. brand on this girl boss hyper-capitalism. She was the one before the Kardashians said it She had a quote that was, most people don't work hard. Most people move papers around the desk metaphorically and think they're working hard. So there's a lot of complexity here. However, um, this TikTok, I I think will speak for itself. And then let's play it. We'll discuss it. And we'll talk about its real world implications.
1: The reality TV reckoning, the new Bethany Clause. Reality stars are the stepchildren, the losers, the mules, the pack horses, the ones that the entertainment industry is going to rely on right now to carry the water and do the heavy lifting when real stars, real A-list Hollywood is on strike. The issues are different than the ones for actors. We are not actors. We are not playing other people. We are not saying the words that are written for us. We are exposing ourselves, our families, our lives, our children. Look at Raquel having an affair. Her life is pretty much ruined and at what price? Reality television exploits affairs, bankruptcy, falling off the wagon, not really having what you say you have, saying something inappropriate, risking cancellation every single time the camera goes on. I recognize that a young, doe-eyed reality star to be wanting fame at any cost doesn't know what they're signing, and they can't afford a good lawyer, but they'll sign away their entire life just for a chance at fame. I recognize that nurses and teachers and minimum wage employees think this is ludicrous because they are also not treated fairly. I acknowledge that, it is not fair. This is a separate, very particular matter where people's names and likenesses are used and exploited forever. I do not have the idiot guide to starting a union in one day, but I will learn quickly.
0: Wow, Norma Ray, Bethany <laughs> Frankel, unbelievable.
1: <laughs> Who would have thought?
0: Not I. I'm, I'm glad you laid out all of like the the preamble about you know the problematic stuff, all of that important to keep in mind. But on a lot of this, she's right. I mean, mm-hmm. I, like reality TV. Actors, performers, however you want to categorize them, should not be treated that way. That's like, as far as working conditions go in the entertainment industry, that's probably as uh, exploitative and horrendous as it gets.
2: And so as of yesterday, I probably started to say this and didn't finish, but as of yesterday, August 10th, SAG-AFTRA now says, and people are saying it's kind of like immediately after this, probably in response to this, at least they're crediting Bethany with this, that it is working toward the protection of the reality performers in an effort to end the, quote, exploitative practices that have developed in this area and to engage in a new path to union coverage. Quote, we are tired of studios and production companies trying to circumvent the union in order to exploit the talent that they rely upon to make their product. That's fucking cool.
0: Good. I, w- I would love to see reality TV performers get protection through SAG and this is the time to to demand it.
2: Yes, and it's exciting because this is what we've talked about this. Most people are saying this. This is the moment where it's needed of like, this is all labor. All labor. There's no like competitive, like we will, you should get exploited, but we shouldn't. This is everyone everywhere. Mm-hmm. I was having a conversation with um my Uber driver this morning who was asking me about the sag after strike and was just like yeah that's right like we all have general strike general strike like we all have to strike it's the only thing that makes sense and so the more people who get on board the more groups of people that are like oh is this the moment this yes it's the moment even if bethany frankel gets the credit who who cares
0: (laughs) and i and i think that's such an important point that like the need for some people to, uh, I don't know, classify some working class jobs as either more working class or less working class than others. Like people who are like, who gives a shit about actors? They're not like sanitation workers, or they're not factory workers, or like, or when like Starbucks started unionizing, there were people that were like, Starbucks workers aren't the same as people who you know like work on a factory floor. And the unfortunate truth is, uh, if you are an employee you are getting exploited. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. what your job is. Uh, If you are an engineer at Google getting paid $200,000 a year, you are getting exploited because you are generating more wealth than what you are being paid. Uh, Mm. The only class of people in any organization that don't, you know, through our our various labor social dynamics and labor laws, the, the only people that don't really count as workers are managers because... You're technically in a different class within an organization. So I, 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 so I think that's so important to underline. And you know, like something I've been thinking about is like I would love to hear something from the employees of Netflix, from the employees of Amazon, from the employees of Apple. I would, or 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 people that work within the Hollywood studio system, because you know I'm sure there are some people that are like towing the company line and are like, well, what the actors and writers are demanding is, you know, unreasonable. And then I'm sure there are a lot of people who are like, oh, I really want them to get what they want. But like, I'm, you know, what can I do? I'm just a development exec. I'm just an assistant. I'm just a whatever job at this this giant company. And those people wield a lot of power. Like, can you imagine if like a faction of Netflix employees came out and were like, hey, we're all gonna go on strike until... You all give the actors and writers what they deserve. Like, that's power. That's how power gets wielded. So, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's tough to think about. I'm, I'm, I'm but I'm really glad to hear that, uh, that there's movement on this for the reality performers because it's long overdue.
2: Yeah. A win for anyone's labor is win for all of our labor. Does that make sense? Um, I you Where am I?
0: Yeah. You're at home. Don't worry. It's all right. <laughs> all right. Well, before, uh, Rivka falls asleep, we should get to our <laughs> conversation. For today but before we do we just want to let our listeners know that this podcast is produced by the two of us we
2: perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen
0: and as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values we will not be selling ads on this show we rely completely on community support to keep the show going so if you're able to support us please consider subscribing to our patreon
2: for just five dollars a month you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes and you'll be directly supporting this show You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com.
0: You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we are going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our conversation about trading places with Jamel Johnson. All right, we are thrilled today to be joined by Jamel Johnson. Jamel is a stand-up comedian from Woodbridge, Virginia. He made a name for himself in the D.C. comedy scene through a hard-to-hate mixture of non-threatening yelling, weird stories, and impressively specific but not alienating sports and music references. He's now located in Los Angeles, where things are going okay. You can hear him on one of his many podcasts, including The Brandon Jamel Show, uh, Jamel, thank you so much for joining us on Movies Versus
3: Capitalism. I cannot believe you read all of that. Thank you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I requested a bio and you gave me, you gave me a bio.
3: I gave you my bio from my currently dead Squarespace page.
2: <laughs> RIP.
0: <A.
3: laughs> yeah, no, we'll, we're, we're going to bring it back to life. What did One you switch over
0: days. to to Wix or something?
3: No, I just uh, stopped paying the bill on time. Mm, sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I think that's why most websites end is because people get that yearly Squarespace, Squarespace renewal email, and they're like, oh, I, this, I don't think this this website has benefited me at all.
2: I just lost one, actually. Yeah. Damn.
3: Mm. Condolences. I
2: know. Thank you. And i am been deb- debating. <laughs> I'm like, we'll see. We'll see if someone snatches it from the grave, or maybe it'll be there waiting for me in a little bit.
0: Jamel, before we get into talking about trading places, we wanted to ask you a little bit about your work in the L.A. comedy scene. Specifically, I know you've been doing a lot of stuff at uh, Little Secret L.A. recently. Um, We actually just had uh, Devin Young on the podcast a few weeks ago. And I I had mentioned that we were friends and she was like, oh, Jamel's the best. She mentioned this uh, how to blow up a pipeline panel that you hosted and like prepared a bunch of questions for. And then I guess, did you just host uh, the Chris Small, Steve Donziger Hot, lab- hot Labor Summer Show, how did, how did that, like, first tell me how you got into that scene and then tell us a little bit about how that show went.
3: Honestly, I, as I get into most things, fell backwards into it. I was just doing, I did a, I think I did some stand-up there, like, sometime last year. I was doing a show with Brandon Wardell, of the, famously of the Brandon Jamel Show. So Brandon's already in the mix with these guys. He's doing a show. I get referred. I do the show. It goes well. They have me come back for this uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline panel, which a movie, I don't know if you've seen the movie yet. Seen have yet. you seen it? No, I haven't wait. seen it yet. Is it even out? Yeah. I don't know. They're, it it was is. Like, it's out. Uh, you can stream it. It's one of them's, And I don't even remember preparing questions, dude. I watched the movie <laughs> and it was just, I was doing the panel and I was kind of like, I don't know, do I talk? When do I talk? Is it now or do I talk? And then I, mm. you know, I, I was up there. I was trying to put the pieces together. I meet Steve Donzinger through this mm-hmm. he was at the panel just oh okay a, a very nice guy and I guess he thought something I said was funny I don't remember being funny at all I'm gonna be <laughs> honest I feel like I, I thought I went oh for a million at that panel
0: was Steven the one that was like you got to come host when we're back
3: it was Devin but Steve, when we- he sees me I'm always shocked he remembers me like dude you've been to you've been to you were in the feds man
0: but he's he's seen so few people for such a long time that now oh, he's probably just sense. like he's like I'm just like retaining faces and names now. I'm just so glad to be actually seeing people out here. That's it.
3: I host the panel. The panel was good. Chris is amazing. The mm-hmm. guy can command a room. That's the one big note that I have. It's mm-hmm. a bunch of people at the show and it's his venue. They they they're over by LA River. Like they were like right by the river, like at the river. It's like a Yeah, in Frogtown like, now, right? Yeah, Super Frog Town. This is like this is like Toad Town. (laughs) This ain't even where this ain't even where the frogs be at. It's over on the side, and it's it's a it's a great space, huge, nice, open. Got the you know just like some indoor, big outdoor where the show is. But there's like this weird like um just like a a divider in like a physical division in the room. Just a piece of metal, which is fine, Mm -hmm. but it's just if you are going to watch a show or be at a thing, you would pick mm-hmm. a side. You would either stand on one side of the metal, another side of the metal, you know what I'm saying? And it's just, uh, everybody was kind of further away from the stage because of this metal. And then Chris Malls gets on stage. This is like 30 minutes in the show. As soon as he gets on stage, he's like, yo, can y'all come to the stage please? And then everybody, like everybody at the <laughs> venue is immediately, now, every, now everybody thinks the metal's cool.
0: I He did the same thing. We saw their their show in New York and he did the exact same thing. He was just like, Why is everyone standing so far back? Get up over here. And I got to see him lead a Labor Day march last year and I was just like, Damn, this dude is like this dude's got like theater experience. Like he is Charisma, commanding like yeah. in the middle of Times Square, just like commanding like a giant crowd. And I was like, damn, this is very impressive.
3: I mean, dog, where's he from?
0: He's from Jersey. Jersey?
3: Yeah, you can't bro, yeah, yeah you can't live in Newark. Everybody in Newark has that skill. Like so straight up, I believe it's it. a, if you were, if you were black and from the greater, from the tri-state area, you for sure know how to rap. You can actually rap. You could actually have a career okay. as a rapper. You could actually lead a march. You could actually like
0: all transferable skills. Just being from the tri-state
3: making it to 25. If you're from Newark and you make it to 25 years old, these, the government should give you a communications degree. <laughs> like it should it, like they should just hand you one because you made it, bro. Uh
0: that's actually a, a pretty perfect segue to us talking about this movie because there's a lot of just like transferable skills happening yeah, in this I movie. What I'm saying. Yep.
2: Exactly. Absolutely. Yep. 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 So Jamel, you picked a movie for us to watch that um I'm excited to discuss with you because before we started recording, you mentioned that you know this like the back of your hand. This film is trading places. Directed by John Landis, written by Timothy Harris and Herschel Weingrod, starring Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, Jamie Lee Curtis, Denholm Elliott, Ralph Bellamy, and Donna Michi. The budget <laughs> for this film was $15 million. It grossed $90 million worldwide. And this tells the story of affluent Wall Street executive Louis Winthorpe III, played by Aykroyd, and down-on-his-luck street hustler Billy Ray Valentine, Murphy, When Winthorpe's uh, bosses, the successful brokers Mortimer and Randolph Duke, Duke and Duke, can't settle their debate about how much a person's environment influences their decisions, the brothers decide to use Winthorpe and Valentine as test subjects and place a bet on the outcome. Using unsavory means, the Dukes strip Winthorpe of his entire life of luxury and install Valentine in his position at their company. When Winthorpe and Valentine uncover the scheme, they set out to turn the tables on the Dukes.
0: And boy, do they. Jamel. a little bit of historical context for when this movie came out. This movie was released on June 8th, 1983. So we are two years into Ronald Reagan's first term as president, about a year and a half after he broke the air traffic controller strike by firing over 11,000 striking workers. In July, the world's first dedicated hospital ward for HIV and AIDS patients opens in San Francisco General Hospital in the world of movies return of the jedi is released in theaters the film gandhi wins eight academy awards including best picture and that november a christmas story is released in theaters uh vanessa williams becomes the first black woman to be crowned miss america mcdonald's introduces the mcnugget onto its menu and the drug abuse resistance education program dare program is launched and finally michael jackson's music video for thriller is broadcast for the first time
3: what a year bro. for American culture. The, huh? Hold on, bro. You when you <laughs> you started with Reagan. This is this is Reagan's, Reagan's first hit record. <laughs> yeah. His first hit <laughs> single. He goes platinum seven times in his runs. Yeah, he wins all right. the Grammys. And then the McNugget came out. Oh. The McNugget might outlive us all.
0: It's always wild to look back and, and think about like how much bad stuff was was happening, but also like how much just Either good or innovative stuff was happening, like the McNugget, um, like Thriller coming out.
3: And that's how they got us, man. If Thriller never came out, we could have been focused on how fucked up this shit was.
0: Yeah, it's it's Michael Jackson's fault for distracting everybody <laughs> through the rest of Ronald Reagan's first term. He never would have won that re election in a landslide if it wasn't for Thriller. It was
3: it was literally too good for people to focus. That's, it's 10, that's correct. It's ten it's ten platinum singles on there, man. Yeah. <laughs>
2: It's so bad. Now I'm just picturing those 11,000 workers that were fired by Reagan just doing the the thriller dance.
3: Yeah, they probably left. <laughs> <laughs> they walked out like zombies for
1: sure. Mm-hmm. Oh,
2: Okay, Try- <laughs> so Jamal, this was your immediate go-to movie. Tell us about it. Why is this such an important film to you and why did you pick it to talk about on this podcast?
3: Uh, this movie is one of my favorite movies. This movie is one of the first movies I saw as growing up and thought, oh shit, this is it. This is the movie, you know? Mm -hmm. I bought this movie on DVD full price. I then lost that DVD and then stole another copy of the DVD when they had changed the box art and it was in a cheaper box. This is one of those DVDs that got printed different times. This movie is so important.
0: It's a classic, yeah.
3: It's a goddamn classic. And I went to Philly twice this year. So I just said, I've been to Uh Philly twice this summer. What were you in Philly for? I was doing some stand-up and then, uh, well, and most, and well, more eating, just eating ice cream.
0: So, Jamel, I'm curious, like, I'd imagine so. Like you're you're a kid. You're introduced to this movie. I, I remember seeing this uh, at a younger age, and I remember like the the comedy of it really hitting for me at that time. Um, I don't think I really was picking up on a lot of the politics of the movie. But now that you're a much older adult man, when you watch this movie, rewatch this movie, like what do you take away from it in terms of its political messaging?
3: I feel like the movie's trying to convince me to get into the stock market mm-hmm. as a child. And I just I wish I had as a child, and I don't want to now. When I watch it now, what do I think? I think I can't believe that's what the fucking uh, stock exchange used to look like. I can't believe this whole building's carpeted. And everyone's it smoking does, cigarettes. It
2: does. It's like a giant mosh pit. Like, that's what I was like, this is just a... What I understand of Wall Street after watching that was like, it's just a mosh pit. Where everyone's just...
3: Running around. Just running, running. around with sheets and of paper. And that is appealing
2: like, to kids. Like, there is something very appealing about just, like, the chaos. It Because you're just like, oh, I want to run and just mash bodies and scream money. I yeah. did, at least.
3: Sheets of paper, they're just printing out a dumbass looking... Like, <laughs> those sheets of paper where it's five different copies. And one's, like, yellow and one's pink. And, and, you know what I mean? And it's, like, it smells mm-hmm. weird. And these are little sheets of paper... Are like whole companies' existences and a whole just the, the fate of a town on a sheet of paper and some guy in a suit is just running around in circles bumping into people.
2: I mean, it still is. It's not different than that now. Maybe there's no carpet. I don't know.
3: Yeah, that's it. I think maybe. they all they did was get rid of the carpet. <laughs> M- maybe less paper
0: involved.
2: Yeah, they're very concerned about the paper. <laughs> they
0: were concerned about their carbon footprint. That's why they, they changed over to a digital system on Wall Street. No, but you're right. It's like watching that and we're like, oh, so someone could lose millions of dollars just because, like, someone couldn't reach their arm into the pile of people fast enough? Like, that's it?
2: Which is a great analogy for, yeah. like, everything in this fucking country. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting, Frank, because you said like you're not sure how much you understood as a child about the politics. But I do feel like watching this, I was like, it feels like it's very that like actually kids would get it. It's like it was very clear, like who the bad guys were and exactly like the politics are like, can you reach your hand in the middle of the screaming people? Like none -hmm. none of this is logical. There is no logic to Wall Street. Even now, even when we talk about like this, just like where we're at with our industry of like streaming and you're like, they, it's all fucking made up. We don't know. Those streamers don't tell us what they're making off of streaming because it's all fucking made up. And they're just trying Mm. to like pretend in their little mosh pit on Wall Street that like they have more money than they have. And they don't want us to ruin that for them. Like it's so silly
0: and it's and it's all based on feelings it's all based on like <laughs> i yeah. i feel like i feel like maybe this company is valuable oh now i don't feel that way anymore and now it's not <laughs> valuable
2: and that's what's that's what's genius about the script right because if for anyone who hasn't seen it in a long time or is seeing it for the first time like myself the the concept is that they're trading places and they have this bet and what you learn from it is like anybody can do the job that winthorpe the like uh, commodities trader had because it's also a fucking made up. Like anyone who's just like, I have a feeling, you know, and what else? I mean, they're they're good. at. They have a good gut feeling, I guess. But it's like what you're saying. Like, it's not hard.
3: I mean, and he was also Billy Ray Valentine's character also had the advantage of insider trading.
0: Yeah, they do resolve the movie by committing a crime, technically.
2: <laughs> well, did you all know this? They actually in 2010 made the Eddie Murphy rule in commodity futures trading based on the film no what is that yeah yeah i read let's see trading commodities on inside information obtained from the government wasn't illegal when the film came out but now it's illegal and that happened in 2010 it was like a finance overhaul law and um this special provision is referred to as the eddie murphy rule Uh and was it
3: was it ruled on by one guy playing five different characters <laughs> i think the judge and the clerk and the bailiff on the and he plays the senator who proposed the rule and
0: the other senator who opposed it <laughs> i would watch that i movie. would watch
3: that still i think he also made that movie i think it's mm-hmm. called distinguished gentleman
0: rivka i'm curious because you said this is your first time watching it so like what did you take away from i guess the the politics the class politics of this because it's like a lot of things I feel like it's really strong on. And then there are other parts where I feel like things are handled a little like clumsily or without a lot of care. So, curious, like watching it at this age, 2023, 20, what was your takeaway?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting about also watching films now that we have this podcast and we've seen like this, the 80s a few times over, you know, we've talked about Ghostbusters and just like seeing this sort of aesthetic and this world and this Reagan era. wall street of it all like nothing felt like oh that's a that's really a nuanced new take i mean this was felt very like prince and the pauper which is a mark twain and then you know what i mean you're like this is an older Hmm. story that as long as there's been class politics people have been talking about and debating like so these old dudes who um who are those guys who are the ones from the muppets like right they must have been based a little on them right
3: Waldorf. Waldorf. Waldorf.
2: yeah so I already was like, oh, I kind of like feel like I know these characters. I mean, there were some there wasn't like anything that I was like, wow, that's a- I never thought of anything this way. But it was um, it was fun. I mean, it was fun. It mm. was a piece of history I'm trying to think if I had if anything really stood out. I mean, I wasn't surprised by like the random sexism. You know, you're like now we're just going to have boobs for boobs sake, which that's I don't even know if that's sexist. Like that, and it's that alone is not sexist because I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis's great boobs, you know, like looks great in it, but you're like, there's absolutely no fucking rhyme or reason. That part was just like, okay, yeah, we are in the 80s. They're like, you know, what would make this movie really pop would really make our class politics just stick out, really drive the story forward. Just take your shirt off and get in bed with this man Mm -hmm. who has 103 degree fever. Why
3: has a has a deadly level fever
2: deadly level that's like very (laughs) high and then she just like and doesn't even take her makeup off she just and doesn't it was so odd she just takes her shirt off and gets in bed with this gross sick man who also had just been like in that santa i didn't like it so i guess that stood out to me the most
0: no, I think that stood out to me as well because there's also like there's a lot of very explicit racism in this movie, but like a lot of the racism is attributed to the to the dukes, to like the rich old crusty white guys. So like when they say racist shit, it's like offensive but you're like, "Oh, I understand why they're why they're doing it. They're trying to tell us that these characters are fucking horrendous dudes." But the sexism was just sexism. It was just like, yeah, Jamie Lee taking her shirt off Uh, At the party that Eddie Murphy has at the house, just like two random women just taking their clothes off. off. I've been to a lot of working class parties, and uh, no one is just like taking their boobs out uh, during them. I like that. That doesn't seem to be a thing that just happens when non rich people are hanging out.
3: Yeah, I was just, I guess, true (laughs) because Janelle Monet kind of moved the bar, but that is still rich people hanging out.
0: Yeah, I expect it at a. Ri- I expect at rich people parties. I expect it at like rich weird sex parties.
2: There's no problem taking shirts off, but this wasn't like a free the nip. This wasn't like a st- any kind no, of statement. This it's exactly yeah. what you're saying, Frank. And it wasn't the context for anyone listening of like Valentine gets in and like they give him they give him Winthrop's house. They give him all this. So suddenly he has all this stuff, and he's like, okay, I'm gonna throw a party. And then what did you make of this? Like this, I didn't understand what was happening where he gets really. He suddenly gets really annoyed because everyone's like treating his stuff poorly. Which it's a party; like they're not doing anything outrageous. Then he kicks everyone out, and you're supposed to be—I guess the the message was like supposed to be like now once you have nice things, you start you just don't want riffraff around. Like I, what was the message there? I know it's comedic. I get it. I'm not like I'm taking it serious, but you know.
3: I I guess I guess it was supposed to be. Him realizing that he didn't want money to have a bunch of friends around, like oh mm, yeah, like you know, because he's like on the street trying to figure out how to like make ends meet, and then once the the ends meet, he's like well, maybe they all want to be have a bunch of friends, and I don't know, he, it was yeah, I guess it was supposed to be the feeling that these people are like trying to take
2: from it was weird, but the one character that I really appreciated was the the butler what was his name coleman he had some interesting like he had an interesting because he was the one who's like you know he's in on it he's part of he's like god fuck these old dudes who are playing this prank but i have to play along because this is where i get my paycheck so he's like in on it but I, I, he was having a good time at the party like
0: yeah he's throwing shots back
2: it was yeah it was a strange one of those like very 80s takes on, i mean there was no nuance i guess but like what are we what are we I guess I wasn't particularly expecting anything. I just thought, I guess looking at this as like, how are people who are at this time in the 80s seeing this movie? Like, how is that affecting the way they then go out into the world? I do think there's like, you know, you can't not relate it to the expectation. Like, hey, baby, take your shirt off.
0: I, I mean, I just took it as like, they, they needed to like for this for the sake of this, the story, they needed to demonstrate that, like, in fact, this this whole trading places bet and scheme like works, I guess, because like that's what happened. That's like the arc of Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd is like Dan Aykroyd, like gets subsumed by his poverty and then like turns to crime. And then I guess on the flip side with Eddie Murphy, we're to believe like once you I guess the message is like once you have nice things, you want to protect them and like it's all about right. it's all about it's all about like private property and possession which is like totally. a very like it's a very capitalist value to be like well you see the only thing that was like separating him from like giving a shit to not giving a shit is like now this stuff belongs to him and yeah, if stuff yeah, belongs yeah. to you you want to like keep it nice so i guess that like that's that's what they were trying to do in that scene
2: it is cuz the whole arc is nature versus nurture and yeah nothing in nothing in between
0: Actually, now that we're talking about this scene, it's making me realize that like that the kind of the message of this scene is I think is a little harmful, which is like as soon as you find yourself in like this upper class, then like now you're not going to you're, you're not going to have patience for the, like the working class people. And and also all of the working class people are going to be like disrespectful assholes and like come into your place and like fuck up all of your shit. So it's kind of having it a little bit both ways.
2: Well, that was there from
0: the top. Yeah, no, it was there from the top. From the like, um, you
2: know, they do the morning, the morning, Mister Winthrop, you know, and they show like, dude can't even look people in the eyes, and then they go to the boss, who's like even worse. That like, if you have money, if you're there, you're a, you are a dick. Like that was, you know.
0: Oh yes, I th- that's that's what I thought was the strongest about this movie's politics was like the way that they caricatured just like old crusty white guys and, and and like rich old crusty and not just not just old but like all rich white people like that stuff was to me some of the funniest shit in the movie um like the the frat bros singing a cappella to their women like just absolutely <laughs>
3: absurd obviously my least favorite part of the film <laughs> <laughs> That's usually if I'm rewatching it cuz I'll I'll throw it on a couple times a year. And whenever I like I'm one of those guys who will rewatch a movie that I've seen on TV with the curse words taken out. Mm-hmm. I like still. So, you know, if I'm halfway through Trading Places, when the frat bro scene comes up, I like that's usually when I'll go grab some cereal <laughs> okay. or something. I'll come back.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great pee break spot. But like that uh the the scene at the club when they accuse Winthorpe of uh, stealing the money that was like and mm. just all of the all of the paintings of all of the old white men and it's just like you, yeah, s- the it's heritage just like foundation the he- yeah just like major heritage foundation federalist society vibes and there's like nothing like watching that you're just like oh I hate all of these guys like all of these guys are for sure the reason why we like the men literally in this room are why we have all of the problems in like the country today
2: yeah, it's scary.
0: So I, I thought that stuff was really strong, but then and like and rightfully so. And that's not to say that like every rich person is like a stuck up ass, but conversely, whenever this movie like depicted working class people or people in poverty, like there wasn't a lot of sympathy towards them. I didn't feel like I, I feel like it, like that's the part that wasn't handled with a lot of care. Is like like the party scene, like the way that they the kind of the way that they depict Eddie Murphy at the beginning is just like this hustler. Just it felt very broad it felt like you know it felt like two white writers in the 80s being like we know how it's like to be poor and non-white <laughs> uh let us show you and actually i i looked up the screenwriters uh weingrod and uh harris and they also co-wrote space jam so whoa range
3: wow yeah. they went from philly to space
0: but these guys have, I guess, built a career of, you know, being two like white screenwriters who are like, we can write black characters. Like, we got it. We wrote Trading Places. Don't worry. It's,
3: yeah, that's damn. And then Space Jam has like a no white character. It's one black guy in uh, aliens and cartoons. Mm-hmm. So they're like only writing for a black guy. They know at least there's white guys to talk about with in Trading Places. Are the Looney Tunes white? <laughs> Probably. I mean, I, I never really thought about it. The Looney Tunes <laughs> are white.
0: We could go tune by tune and really uh, debate I think, this yeah, out. Yeah, I
2: think it's tune dependent.
0: <laughs> like Donald Duck, definitely white. Yeah.
3: No, the Looney Tunes is white, dog. The Looney Tunes, mm-hmm. Disney, they're all white. And then like the Animaniacs is like, that's when you start to, you know what I'm saying, get away mm-hmm. from that a little, a little bit.
2: I'm with you, Frank, on the, I thought it was really strong in its depiction of the Heritage Foundation. I went to prep school for two years and I will never forget that was, because I'm from New York, it was like a, And I was from, like, Brooke, I just had never experienced, like, something like that before going to this prep school. And I remember one day just, like, running into this hallway and it just was, like, it felt like this endless hallway with just pictures of white men, like, as far as you could see on either side. And it, it, like, it literally, truly haunting. (laughs) And I thought they got that, like, where you're just, like, this is truly so, so haunting and so our...
0: It's scary.
2: Our country, you can't, you can't Hamilton away from that. Like that rea- like that core terrifying reality. <laughs> um, I wish it had leaned in a little towards that kind of like it was satirical, but I thought they could have even pushed the satire there and pushed some of the horror. I thought it did a great job of like moments where like they they would build it up and then you would just see like the Duke brothers' utter racism, you know, where they'd be like, oh, we were doing all this, but like we would never let this guy be here, you know. Um, and they, I don't know, there was something they did it that I thought it was like they. Maybe even at that time, it was like sharp enough that it was a moment. It didn't feel like under the radar. It was like they wanted us to hear that point.
3: You know what's missing? I think there's nothing that really shows that the Dukes are like actually like idiots, or like something mm-hmm. to just establish that they that what they got is just because they were old white guys already. Mm-hmm. like that is kind right. of missing. like
2: well they actually say they we they built well, it they are like what aren't they like we're the founders of this trade
3: do, A has been strange since it was founded i'm sorry That's my favorite line of all time. this is
2: the point in the podcast jamel where we have you just do the film
3: do voices mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm i'm fucking ready
0: they, they kind of did it i want to play this one clip because this was like the part this was like the one bit in the movie that i thought did such a good job of kind of what you're talking about like doesn't really paint the Dukes as idiots, but it does paint what they do as just sort of like bullshit, totally high level Wall Street, upper class bullshit, but still the same kind of bullshit.
1: Now, some of our clients are speculating that the price of gold will rise in the future. And we have other clients who are speculating that the price of gold is going to fall. They place their orders with us and we buy or sell their gold for them. Tell them the good part. (laughs) <laughs> uh, the good part, William, is that uh, no matter whether our clients make money or lose money, uh, Duke and Duke get the commissions. Well, what do you think, Valentine? Well, it sounds to me like you guys are a couple of bookies. <laughs> I told you he'd understand.
0: Yes. Like, that's it. That's it, right? Like that. Th- for me, that's like the strongest part of the movie is like, You know Eddie Murphy a working class dude coming in getting taught how the fucking stock market works and being like oh this is gambling you guys are bookies Um, I had a a meeting with a financial advisor years ago and he said to me like this is a dude who like makes his money off the stock market and he's like do you know why they call it stock trading and I was like no why he's like because the word gambling was already taken I was like oh okay oh you guys know this
2: this was Eddie Murphy's like one of Eddie Murphy's first big movies.
0: Is this before Beverly Hills Cop or after?
3: I think it's before. before. I think it's like right before. And then Beverly Hills Cop comes and then it's just over. And then it was originally wit- written
2: for uh, Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder.
3: Ooh. Ooh.
2: Which, honestly, I was like, I kind of wish I saw that movie.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's also a sick I do. movie.
2: Eddie Murphy's great in this, but I mean, that. I would take Gene Wilder over Dan Aykroyd any day. Dan Aykroyd sure. does not do it for me that may have been part of my issue with the movie. it's like clearly a very personal thing. Just like, I can't stand him. There it is. I
3: I like how, I like how weak he, he was. That's what I like. Dan Aykroyd played a great weak man to me. What do you mean by weak? Just like you. Okay. So like when you get deep, when you get deeper into who Louis Winthrop is, you're just like, Oh, this is this guy who's done nothing. He's done nothing. He's been nowhere. He's like from a fucking like a, like a hatchery, a rich hatchery of guys (laughs) who's like never had to touch anything or be anywhere. And I just, I liked not liking him.
2: I wanted Valentine to win. I get that like they had to like have the the whole end of it, like the solidarity, them coming together. But then they're like, just so they could be more rich. Like nothing was actually resolved in that storytelling. At the, I wish they like came together and Valentine was like, ha ha, I actually conned you too. Bye.
3: Yeah, Mm -hmm. that is an ideal
2: we're supposed to believe that they're buddies now. Those two. I mean, maybe. Valentine, I guess, That's didn't have any right friends point. and was pretty antisocial, didn't want people taking their shirts off around him, so
3: I guess you're right. That is and, they do kinda let they let Dan Aykroyd off easy. Rivka, I think it's it's funny that you say
0: that about Dan Aykroyd because like I, I generally am not a big fan of Dan Aykroyd. I, I've like not that I dislike him, but I've never I've never once been like, man, that is the funniest guy in the room. But I did think that he was actually very funny in this performance to speak, Jamel, to speaking to like what you're talking about, like, especially in the beginning when he is just like pretending like he is tough, pretending like he is the one who apprehended Eddie Murphy at the arrest. And he's like, was well, like, well, you know, when it's a high pressure situation like that, it's either, you know, live or, you know, kill or live. And it's just like, oh, you're so full of shit. And he, like, there are a couple of line deliveries that he gave and like that very, like, that affectation that he had, and the way that he was speaking, like just like a rich asshole, that I he, he got me a few times in this movie, more than he ever had before. Would have been really cool to see uh, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor do. Gene this. Wilder I, would have been.
2: They needed some. I mean,
0: I, lo- I, I love. I know all I'm of their with two t- comedians, so much.
2: and so I don't want to offend. But sometimes I do feel like you they run the risk, like with something like that, like sometimes comedians can be a little one note in their acting or like miss, and I feel like Wilder would have
3: oh, gotten yeah, sure. it.
0: The last thing I wanted to talk about before we go to the awards is kind of like the resolution of this movie because like it really went off the rails for me during the whole like train car heist farce. That in rewatching. Oh, yeah, that, buddy. That's where it really, really lost me. Just up where, where you like, you felt the 80s of it. You felt like the, this was written by white guys part of it. It's Fun like, day on Eddie- set. Eddie Murphy is doing, you know, just like caricature, like dude from Africa voice, and then Jamie Lee Curtis comes in leaderhosen, like being totally sexualized. And then I wasn't expecting it, but Dan Aykroyd, full on blackface.
2: I was not expecting it either.
0: And then we're it's also like in the movie, they're presenting it in a way like Dan Aykroyd is believable and uh, the dude that they're trying to con, Paul Gleason, is like, "Oh yes, like that is another black man that has just entered the the train. That is that is definitely not obviously a white guy with shoe polish on his face."
3: Some of the most unjust, unreal of the unrealist unrealness. wowzers! Every movie, every comedy in the eighties really lets you down at one point. They all take a turn, just really letting you down for mm-hmm. various reasons. And this is among the craziest. How much time was spent on this? Do you think this was like two days? Are you Are looking at the call sheets? Like, oh, we're doing the train again, huh? But
1: here's the
2: thing. <laughs> the shit that makes it on screen, you know that's like the tamest. Like, I'm just thinking about like, what's being said is they're prepping freaking Ackroyd in hair and makeup. Like, the the jokes people think that they can make, you know, because this is what's like, this is what's funny in this set. Same with like, all those people who had to take their shirts off, you're like, they're just standing there in between takes topless with like a room full of men who, like, you know what I mean? A room full of people who are like, we're literally just doing this because like the amount of sexual assault that no doubt went down on this set. And then the and then the um gorilla.
0: Oh, yeah, classic,
2: classic. Like the 80s was also like, it kind of made sense because like I was born in like the tail end of the 80s. Like these things were starting when you watch them, you're like, this is why. I was like, "What's with the gorilla suits?"
3: It just—it really makes you wonder what they wrote first. Mm. <laughs> did they write the beginning of this, or did they write the end of this first? How did we get here? Who was in charge?
0: It—it it all started with that final shot with the gorilla. Some that was the that was the inspiration for this whole movie. Some guy was like, "I have this idea for this movie. I don't know how it starts, how the middle happens, but I know at the end one of the bad guys is gonna get fucked by a gorilla." <laughs> that's that's all I know. And you know what? They got there. And they did they, get there. Well. Wow. They made it happen.
3: Yo, know, sick, dude. I've been talking about watching this movie because um, uh, my girlfriend just saw um, Coming to America, mm-hmm. which Coming to America is in the universe of this film. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, we got to watch Trading Places. It's one of the best Christmas movies. So much fun. <laughs> and I forgot all about I was like, oh, right. The fucking where Dan Aykroyd is doing Chet Hanks in the train. <laughs> fuck i very, totally forgot that happened man
2: so wait did that realization happen while you were both watching and were you kind of like, like I was oh just no imagining, D- did you watch together <laughs> like, and you're, like, yeah, like, when you're you had, like you
0: had to de- you had to defend it
3: to her yeah you're just like hey all right remember when we were having fun before this uh in about six minutes <laughs> what you don't understand is there's again. a
2: deeper meaning to it all like it's actually <laughs> a critique of
3: maybe maybe trading places isn't mandatory viewing in the in couples film society anymore
0: that's funny cuz like i was watching it and my partner walked in in the beginning some of like the early like duke brothers lines and she was like what is this shit that you are watching and i was like no 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 they are They are going to be commenting on it. That's like, that is what this is about. And she's like, okay, I'm skeptical. And I was like, you have every right to be skeptical.
2: And And Angelica was right. We
3: will get there. Mm -hmm. My Um, one
2: question before we get to our awards is just, are you both as obsessed with limousines as I am still? Like I still, if someone's like, you want to get in this limo? I'd be like, oh yeah. And I feel like this reminded me why. Like limousines, the 80, like... It's just in my blood from having been raised in this era.
3: It's true, big cars. No, just just limousine. Just a wide vehicle. I any even if it's close, like the level right below limousine, I'm still in like a huge Cadillac. Okay. My aunt used to ride around in a Buick that was like, it was like the length (laughs) of like a float, like a float from like the Rose Bowl parade. Have you ever been
2: in like um a limo with a you know those jacuzzis and that feels like the epitome of 80s i've never done that that's,
3: i've never seen one
0: amazing. in real life
2: you've never seen one in jersey Frank? yes i've seen them i've seen them on a like highways
0: <laughs> i've seen hummer limos tons of hummer limos but I- i've never but actually the hot tub seen is not always
2: outside sometimes the hot tub's covered so you wouldn't necessarily know
0: oh so
3: mobile just... style <laughs> it's a little clear dome around the hot tub
2: okay sorry that was important but let's get to our awards um, Jamel, as we mentioned, we give out awards for the episode, and our first award is A Point with a View. This goes to the character with the best politics in this movie.
3: Ooh, the best politics in the movie. I think it's,
0: at, at least for me, I think it's Ophelia, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, because she for inexplicable reasons other than she thinks like she'll eventually make money off of Dan Aykroyd in the end she like takes him in she has like what appears to be unlimited empathy for him in his situation even though there's like nothing redeeming about him when she when she meets him I guess that's my answer is there someone else that I'm not thinking of who,
3: who do you guys I am I can't think of my guy's name but I think it's one of the dudes one of the one of the uh the big guys that um Eddie Murphy's in um lock up with. Mm-hmm. The dude no. was just accusing him of lying. You <laughs> know, he's like, Man, we saw you 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 said you had a limousine. Yeah. And I think it's the dude who says yeah.
2: I'm with you. <laughs> the, the, because they have a nice turn. Then they go to the party and then they're like, We we like you. You're not lying. And yeah. Then you're, Eddie Murphy's you're like, we're
3: lying, out. man. Being me, mean to these guys who could have they could have beat his ass in holding.
2: I'm with you. I think it goes to them.
0: Okay, our next award is called Despicable You. This goes to the character or characters with the worst politics in the movie. I feel like there's an easy one unless there is a secret uh, candidate, but I think the Duke brothers, those are like two of the most despicable men ever uh, depicted on screen, I I thought.
2: Mm-hmm. The Dukes. Yeah. The Dukes. Yeah, it's the Dukes. I, I can't. I'm trying to think. Maybe potentially the, was there anyone above them? I guess like Wall Street.
3: Well, their their guy, their 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 um their hatchet man guy, the guy oh. who they have running around causing mischief, who ends beaks. up in the gorilla suit. Mm-hmm. Beeks, but, but he's also just work, he's beaks. a working
2: man. I don't know Beeks. I had some sympathy for. I felt like Beeks was still part of that. I mean, Beeks was no different than anyone else trying to just get.
3: Oh, Beeks was a, a hater. Beeks was a huge hater. <laughs> Beeks is. I would not hang out with Beaks. I'm glad Beaks is getting his money, but Beaks, me and Beaks, I'm not hitting the weed with Beaks.
0: Yeah, I got no I got no love for Beaks, but I think the Dukes, like, the Dukes, like, articulate a very, like, vulgar worldview, like, over and over and over again. And yeah. I thought, like, the, the message that just, like, yeah. you know, we're all just a game to these rich people, I thought that was really strong. Like, these guys are literally just playing, like, a parlor game with these two men's lives and – we come to find dollar. out that their bet for, yeah, their bet is just for $1. So it's just like, they're not even, it's such a, like, they're so cheap throughout the whole movie. I love how all of the the workers around them are constantly just like, what a fucking piece of shit. Like, what a scumbag. Like, I, I like how everyone was commenting on how awful they were.
2: I guess one so, piece yeah. of critique we didn't totally hit on, which I think is important, is like that it does get, speak to that, the, the philanthropic, like the different types of evil rich white people that like at the end of the day they're the same but they try and differentiate they try and fuck with you a little like differentiating the brothers like oh he means so well can pull him up by him by their bootstraps like anybody could be a capitalist if you just fucking you know they try and disguise this the idea of nurture like nature versus nurture but they try and disguise the like concept of oh we're going to be aware of nurture but then like for demonic purposes, where in reality, if you're taking that as a worldview and you understand the whole system needs to change and you give a f- but like they don't give a, f- it's almost worse because they kind of comprehend certain aspects of these things. But at the end of the day, they just truly are evil. Did any of that make sense? What
3: I just said? Yeah. Hey, yeah. They, they get to, they get to be rich again and come to America. It sucks. I don't know if you guys have <laughs> ever seen that one. Yeah, Maybe I have. He just hands them a pile of money for no reason. What the fucking hell?
0: All right, our last award is called A Star is Scorned. This goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about.
3: Oh, well, now now I will say Ophelia, obviously.
0: Yeah, I would watch an Ophelia movie. I thought Jamie Lee Curtis was so good in this.
2: I thought she was, yeah, I, I thought she was as good as she could be. I didn't think there was much to be good at.
3: Sure. Yeah, they kind of, I, I would <laughs> love to see this movie with without the random no shirt off.
2: This movie, I mean, honestly, but this movie without the random no shirt, then there's literally nothing for her to do. They didn't write her a storyline. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yes, her own starring Ophelia, I think that's probably a movie we've seen many times. I would want to see, I thought the the uh, um, the butler was really fascinating and had the most oh, interesting yeah. taste, like knew all the stuff, had clearly this was not... His first time doing this. There's also another mm. world where I was like, "Is this like this could be like a crazy Eric Andre show? <laughs> like this is a wild prank." And I love prank shows, so I was like, "If they were gonna go there, I wish they'd like gone there a li- even even further and like really prank these guys."
3: Yeah, it's you Coleman, know? and then they bring in Mr. Bean. I'm imagining <laughs> Coleman and Mr. Bean together, like they're whenever he goes back across the pond, it's him and Mr. Bean just running amok out there.
2: But he wasn't British, was he, Coleman? <laughs>
3: he was. He was not from Philly. That's all it's I. I That's all I knew for sure. Okay. I would also
0: watch the movie of like what happens to the Dukes immediately after this movie finishes. Like I just want to watch those guys suffer. Yeah, like, yeah. One all brother of has a heart it. attack. He does, and I thought that was a great moment when they were like, "Your brother is dying on the floor," and the one Duke was like, "Fuck him!" Like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, these guys are absolutely ruthless.
3: Yeah. I don't give a fuck. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: All right. Well, that is it for the awards. Uh, Jamel, before we wrap, we like to discuss with our guests uh, how we try to practice our values in our everyday life, uh, whether they're anti-capitalist values or just progressive values. Um, So is there anything that you do in your life, like either a practice you engage in, an organization you work with? uh, Yeah. What is that? How does that translate for you in your everyday life?
3: I don't know why my first thought was using public transit in Los Angeles. Now in New York. Oh yeah. It's like, it's understood. It's what's done. Cause it's what's right. But when you're in LA, they make it harder to just to, to do that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, I don't know, my time on the 81 bus feels, I feel like I'm giving back when I'm on the bus every time. And I mm-hmm. can't think of anybody else. I must've done something good.
2: I love that's your, I love your interpretation <laughs> of the question, which is you're like, what did I do good? What good
3: thing have I done?
0: I know. I, I think that's a. I think that's a really good one. It's and especially, beautiful. Especially mm-hmm. like you're right in Los Angeles because like New York's got good public transit. Boston, I've heard Chicago's like there are cities that have like figured it out. L.A. specifically was like we used to have good public transit. Then we demolished it all. To, yeah, because intentionally. Because we, like, we all like cowtowed to like the auto and like gas industries. Um, yeah, and they're
3: not gonna get me, bro. I'm on the listen. Mm-hmm. I'm taking the blue line to the gold line, to the red line, purple line, pink line, I don't give a fuck, man, flyaway bus. I'm not using Uber for anything other than not getting a DUI, bro. That's it.
0: That is a very good one and a big sacrifice. Cause you're adding, I would imagine time onto an your- An hour you know,
3: and a half, t- every direction to anywhere <laughs> I go, minimum of 90. I have to budget an extra 90 minutes to go to any neighborhood. That is not my neighbor. I live in Highland Park now. Get to a motherfucking Eagle Rock. Ninety minutes. Wow. One bus. Damn. Wow. That's a very damn. That's, sorry. That's same. Flashbacks. Now I'm going through. I'm, I'm having war <laughs> war flashbacks in my head.
0: Now you're like, I like, I gotta start a petition. We gotta get some more tr- fucking bus lines and train lines in here.
3: They should, man. And it's like now they're working on the train, but the only reason they're working on the train is because they're bringing the Olympics, which is. Oh, fucked right. <laughs> up in itself. You know, everybody, I, I know you guys have probably talked about the fact that the Olympics just fucks whatever uh town they go through. Mm-hmm. We and haven't like, yet, well, but they, Yeah. They're going to try to make all the people in Skid Row disappear for the Olympics. Oh, yeah. when
2: is it coming to LA? Like the, the
3: 2028, 20, I think. Oh. 28. Yeah, or, that's 20, disastrous. Yeah, I think it's 20. It's 28, and right now what's going on is they're just like pretending like nothing's happening. And the train is insane, like the red line has just become like it's like a it's like a, a level in streets of rage oh, it's yeah. crazy down it's crazy down there they, they just you gotta jump over barrels, nah, it's crazy down there wow. and now and then by the time twenty twenty eight comes they're gonna try to be like, oh, it's look how nice we are, yeah, I know they're
0: also planning on like uh beefing up the police force specifically for twenty twenty eight they're like we need to add like x." 100 or 1,000 more cops by 2028 in order to be ready for the Olympics.
2: I can't even visualize 2028 right now. Yeah,
0: if anyone's point. interesting, I, I know the group uh, No Olympics has done a lot of organizing in LA around this exact issue. So, all right, Jamel, we'll let you go. Really grateful for you being here. Where can our audience find you and your work?
3: Uh, You can find me at uh, Broccoli House on Instagram. You can go to <laughs> broccolihouse.com if you want to. I don't know who's going to be there. I got I got some links. I got a bunch of stuff. I got like too many things to promote. So all right. Just find them all.
0: We'll put your stuff in the show notes. Thank you, bro. Yeah. Thank you so much Jamel, for being here.
3: Yeah, hey, thanks, appreciate dude. Appreciate y'all, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for
0: listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter. Again, you can find all of that info at mvcpod.com.
2: For next week's movie, we'll be watching the 1997 global smash hit, some may even call it a cultural phenomenon,
0: Titanic. Thank you all.